Hello. It is my pleasure to introduce our speaker today, uh, Dr. Susan Domchek. Um, Dr. Domchek is the Basser Professor in Oncology at the University of Pennsylvania. And before I go into that part, I should read the, the following statement. Um, Dr. Domchek does have financial interests in the past 12 months, including support for, for clinical trials from AstraZeneca, Clovis, Farmar, and Honoraria from AstraZeneca, Clovis, and Bristol-Myers-Squibb. Dr. Hartford has reviewed, he's the course director for this activity, and he has reviewed her relationship and resolved the conflicts by validating the context, content of her presentation. She does intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device, and she is not receiving any direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Um, so Dr. Domchek will speak about risk prediction to therapy in genetic predisposition to breast cancer. She is the director of the Cancer Risk Evaluation Program at the Abramson Cancer Center at Penn, as well as the executive director of the Basser Center for BRCA. She graduated from Dartmouth College with a degree in engineering. She then attended Harvard Medical School. And after that, she had residency in internal medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital, where she served as chief resident. She did a fellowship in hematology and oncology at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. She's been at Penn uh, since 2001, which was lucky for me when I came along in 2005 as a fourth-year medical student and met Dr. Domchek. Um, I was looking for a uh, fourth-year medical student research project. I didn't have much experience in research except for some bench research I'd done here at college. Um, Dr. Domchek found a project. She described the project to me and why it was of interest to her. Um, I was looking at risk for childhood cancers in um, fam families with hereditary breast cancer. Um, I wrote up an abstract that was submitted to ASCO. Today happens to be the ASCO abstract submission deadline. That abstract was accepted. Um, we wrote a paper, which was published, which was my first and only research paper for six years. <laughs> so on the strength, perhaps, of that paper, I was accepted to... Um, to residency at the University of Colorado. And then um, when I was looking at fellowships, uh, I'm sure that people at Dana-Farber may have noticed that the the first the senior author on the only paper I had published was Dr. Domchek. Um, and a few people did mention to me that they had noticed that. Um, so I, I think that uh, Dr. Domchek has had actually a, a pretty large impact on my career. And, and although it may have seemed like a small thing to her at the time, um, I think it's an interesting example of what mentoring can do and how mentoring can reverberate forward. Um, so it is my pr pleasure to be able to introduce her here today. Well, thank you very much. Let me see. Yep, that works. Uh, thank you very much for that very kind introduction. Um, and I was telling Gabe that we are actually reanalyzing that data right now. Findings still hold true all these years later, which is great. Um, and I also wanted to thank Gabe because my son is a college student here at Dartmouth, so I just randomly emailed last year and said, hey, can you invite me to come give a talk so I can visit my son? Uh, so I think it's a win-win it's a for all of us. Uh, you've heard about uh, my disclosures. And I, I, what I really want to set the framework here is that I think this, this group is very well aware of the fact that germline genetic information can really serve as a paradigm for individualized care. We talk a lot about personalized medicine. I think this is a situation that we really are kind of in the forefront. And using this information, we can determine risk assessment, what risk people, uh, what cancers people are at risk for, disease prevention, what to do about that risk, and then increasingly therapeutics, how to target specific cancers associated with these gene mutations uh, with specific therapies. I'm going to show you how BRCA1 and BRCA2 uh, can really serve as a prototype. 
and these genes were cloned in 1994, 1995, and we've really come a long way with understanding how to use this information in the clinic. <clears throat> this, this is a slide I think you all know well. BRCA1 and, and two mutations are associated with a high lifetime risk, particularly for breast cancer, with lifetime risk of up to 70%, a risk of ovarian cancer, which is higher for BRCA1 than BRCA2, and up to a 45% lifetime risk of ovarian cancer. There's increased risk of other cancers as well, and men are, are certainly not off the hook. Um, male breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, high-grade prostate cancer, that, uh, like prostate cancer that men die with and not of, um, melanoma. And those, these latter cancers are all uh, more common with BRCA2 uh, than they are uh, with BRCA1. Now, just to get this a little bit out of the way, you know, who should be considered for germline testing for BRCA1 or 2 mutations? I think the, one of the key things is that this is continuously evolving, um, and it's evolving as risk and benefit assessments change. Uh, so we're, you know, in the beginning, we didn't know anything about risk reduction or therapies, um, and so we've really evolved a database behind that about clinical utility. Um, we also know that there are risks to uh, uh, this type of information. Some, like variants of unknown significance, just relate to uncertainty and potential uh, that uh, patient management will be incorrect uh, based on a misunderstanding of the result. Uh, in the past, cost was a big issue. That's becoming increasingly less of an issue as costs get lower and lower. And then this is complex information, um, and that can have some psychological impact or how people manage this. Um, but it's really key that there are different considerations in different stages of care. I think this is something that we've sort of glossed over over time, which is an unaffected 25-year-old um, whose mother you know, died of breast cancer and had a BRCA1 mutation. Uh, that is a different conversation that you have than someone who's 65 with metastatic pancreatic cancer who's looking for therapeutic options. So how we talk about these things and how we incorporate this uh, really can depend on the different uh, place you're in. There are guidelines, which I'll show you the MCCN guidelines, but there's been a lot of debate about where, the, where these lines should be, and I think you're going to actually hear next week from Dr. Eric some of the uh, considerations about a more broad-based testing. Apparently, apparently my phone wants to talk to me. I don't know what... I don't think I said Siri, but apparently I might have. Um, uh, so, so while we're debating all of these things, I think we, we don't want to forget that there are definitely people that have a higher risk than others, and I think that sometimes we're kind of forgetting about those as we're doing this debate. So we have to make sure that the individuals who are good candidates for testing are getting testing and to not miss them. And we know that actually a lot of those people are being missed, um, and so particularly underrepresented minorities and people who had past cancers. So if you had a cancer a while ago and you're not actively being seen by oncology now, uh, some of those individuals are missed too. So these are the guidelines. I don't expect you to read this. Uh, the NCCN uh, puts out very, at times, convoluted guidelines about who should be considered for testing, a lot of considerations about the specifics of family history. But I kind of summarize a little bit here, which is at this uh, time point, anybody with breast cancer under age 45, anyone with breast cancer under age 60 that has triple negative breast cancer, every epithelial ovarian cancer patient, every man with breast cancer, every person with pancreatic cancer, every man with metastatic prostate cancer. These are currently part of the guidelines. Anyone who's of Ashkenazi Jewish uh, descent with breast cancer, uh, and anyone who has a BRCA1 or 2 mutation found on somatic sequencing. 
So a lot of this testing, you notice, you don't even have to take a family history. These are indications for testing um, before you get into the more convoluted part about family history. Some of the things that are being debated are whether everyone who's of Ashkenazi Jewish descent or even everybody at age 30, particularly every woman at age 30, uh, should be considered. In terms of the Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, one in 40 individuals of Ashkenazi Jewish descent has a BRCA1 or 2 mutation. That's compared to about one in 300 in the general population. And it's why we really consider it. One in 40 is a lot, 2.5% without asking a single question. And so that is, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about this later, but actually it gets to be more of an implementation problem as costs have come down and everything. It's just actually how do you do that um, if you decide um, that it's the right thing to do. But we're going to talk about sort of the evidence base that we have for managing uh, individuals with uh, BRCA mutations. So this is a pretty standard family that we might see where the circles are women, the squares are men, the pink has breast cancer, and the teal is ovarian cancer. Yeah, uh, that's cute. And then here we have three sisters, one who has breast cancer and has a mutation, one who's never had a cancer but has that same family mutation, one who's tested negative for that mutation. And I always use a family where the mutation was inherited through dad, just to make the point that 50% of the time, mutations are inherited through dad. Um, uh, patients don't always think about it this way, so we really have to actively ask about family history more broadly um, to get that information sometimes. So one of the, the key things that first came up is, what about the risk of breast cancer in this individual who's tested negative for the family mutation? I think there was still always concern that this individual was at significantly elevated risk for cancer. Uh, but we, we and others have done studies looking at this. In this case, these are prospective analyses. So they take those women who we consider true negative. They're negative for the known mutation in the family. And I'll show you the bottom one because it's the most impressive. Uh, almost 1,900 BRCA1 and 2 true negatives who were followed prospectively and basically, the lifetime, that their risk of developing breast cancer was not elevated compared to the general population with a risk ratio of 0.93. So basically, individuals who test negative for the known family mutation do not need any special screening unless there's something else going on. Maybe there's something going on on the other side of the family. Maybe they have individual risk factors. But in general, they are not at elevated risk. These women don't need oophorectomy. They don't need mastectomy. So this is incredibly impactful and empowering information. Now. The individual that has a BRCA mutation who has not had cancer, the first question that's always asked is, what is my lifetime risk? And here it gets tricky because depending on the study, there's been a wide range of risk reported over the years. And so we generally do give these sort of general ranges, sort of 50 to 70%. And it leads to the first question is, why is there this tremendous variability and penetrance that's been observed? There's a number of different things that are felt to be potentially important here. There's some effect on specific mutations, mutation-specific risk, um, potentially environmental factors. But one of the things that's been looked at the most is the concept of genetic modifiers. So there's a large consortium called SIMBA, uh, which we and many others are involved in. And in SIMBA, they looked at polygenic risk scores. So these are single nucleotide polymorphisms identified through GWAS studies, which each individually have only a tiny little impact of risk. But if you test a bunch of them, you can then see, and this is a population of 15,000 BRCA1 carriers, 8,000 BRCA2 carriers, that those that have a polygenic risk score in the lowest fifth percentile 
have lower risks of developing breast cancer over their lifetime than those in the highest fifth percentile. Now, of course, this is about the range that we give people when we talk to them. So how people are really going to use this information clinically to make decisions is not clear. Uh, we're starting a study trying to look at that, um, which will probably be active over in the next three to six months. Um, but this is kind of an example. We know there are modifiers, and especially as we're talking about population screening and screening for people who have no family history whatsoever, you know, where along the curve do they lie with all these modifiers? I think is we don't exactly know at this time. I'm not going to get too much into some of the management questions because they're pretty well described in the NCCN guidelines. Uh, but for breast cancer risk, we do start breast MRI at 25. We add mammograms at 30. We discuss mastectomy, which is a complex decision. There are a lot of things that go into that. We talk about selective estrogen receptor modulators. Um, we talk about the potential that there might be an impact of breast cancer risk with uvoforectomy. For ovarian cancer risk, our screening isn't very good, although we offer it, um, but with a soft offer, if you will, because this, again, doesn't really help much. Um, but we do recommend uvoforectomy at 35 to 40 for BRCA1, 40 to 45 for BRCA2. Um, we also, there are strategies that we take with prostate, pancreatic melanoma, and male breast cancer, but honestly, uh, there are no great evidence-based guidelines. We do offer PSA for prostate cancer. We offer endoscopic ultrasound studies for people with pancreatic cancer. Um, dermatology exams are, are easy. Um, and finally, I wanted to talk about what we have uh, come to offer for this mutation carrier who has a diagnosis of cancer, how it might impact her. And here has been where it's been very exciting sort of over the last 10 years about the impact of BRCA1 and 2 mutations in an individual in terms of their sensitivity uh, to specific uh, medications. Um, their, uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2 play key roles in homologous uh, recombination. And most, although not all, most BRCA1 and 2 mutation-associated tumors have losses of heterozygosity, so they lose the second copy. And once you've lost you know, both copies, these tumors have really an inability or a decreased ability to repair double-stranded breaks. So in that context of BRCA1 and 2-related cancers having inability to repair double-stranded breaks, there are these data that HARP inhibitors, so poly-ADP ribose polymerase inhibitors, which play a role in single-stranded breaks through base excision pair. If you block PARP by PARP inhibitors, uh, that you have increased uh, cell killing. So these are the various PARP inhibitors. I'm going to go through the mechanism in a little more detail. These are the various PARP inhibitors that are out there. Again, you all know we're not very clever. You just look at the end of the word there. A RIP is going to be a PARP inhibitor. Um, and all but one of these now has FDA approval for at least one indication. So another way to look at the mechanism of PARP inhibitors is, is the concept of synthetic lethality. Um, where if you block one pathway, you're fine. If you block a different pathway, you're fine. If you block both, things don't work very well. So in this case, we have here a cell with loss of um, BRSA and a homologous recombination a defect. And here is a, a cell with, uh, with normal, uh, normal repair mechanisms. If you give a PARP inhibitor to both of these, in the, in the case on the left, in the, uh, we have a block of both homologous recombination and both re excision repair, and the cell dies. On the right here, in a cell that has normal uh, BRCA function, you can tolerate this loss, and the cell is uh, fine and survives. Of course, like almost everything in medicine, this is too simplistic a model. Um, and nowadays, the updated model is more about the concept of PARP trapping, 
that these, uh, these PARP inhibitors are actually trapped um, and create double-stranded breaks by mechanism of that trapping function. So it's more complicated, but either way, you're kind of leading to a state of double-stranded breaks. And we know that these drugs uh, can work. And so this has been, again, a pretty uh, key element about the, the idea of basic biology. In 2005, uh, there are data in science from two different groups uh, with this idea of synthetic lethality of PARP inhibitors in BRCA null cells. And by 2009, there's a publication in the New England Journal of Medicine with the phase one trial, which is really pretty cool. And the reason that a phase one trial got to the New England Journal of Medicine is because it's hard to target loss, right? So we're used to the concept in oncology of if something's turned on, we make a drug to turn it off. But it's actually hard to target something that's already turned off. So this is the reason that it was in the New England Journal of Medicine is because it's really a different mechanism by which you can target cells. Um, I was not involved in that, but I've been fortunate to be involved in uh, many of the studies since. And the first approval was in 2014, and by 2018, uh, we have approvals in breast cancer. So just to give this a little more detail, the first approval was in 2014 with BRCA-related ovarian cancer uh, with, with three or more prior uh, chemotherapy uh, regimens. And this is uh, a, a, a statement to, like, not give up even when it's been difficult because the drug companies nearly shut all these trials down at one point, and they allowed us to move forward with this trial, which was essentially an expanded access trial, a basket study of BRCA1 and 2 carriers uh, with any type of cancer, but they made it that they were just very resistant. So these were platinum-resistant ovarian cancer patients or breast cancer patients with more than three lines of therapy um, and, and pancreatic and prostate cancer as long as they had a BRCA1 or 2 mutation. So in this study, in the ovarian cancer patients, the response rate was 31%. And the FDA actually took this information and granted uh, the FDA approval because it, met, it was an unmet medical need for more than three lines of therapy. So uh, because here, the median number of lines of prior therapy was four. So you were a very refractory patient population and hadn't had any um, uh, other options. So that was the first approval. Uh, a second approval was given um, to recaparib in much of the same, uh, same setting, although two or more lines of therapy, not one. And then two more studies in ovarian cancer, which were maintenance, um, so after patients had relapsed and then um, gotten chemo again and were randomized to um, a PARP inhibitor versus a placebo, and most recently um, also for a laparib in ovarian cancer after first-line treatment. But in ovarian cancer, there's no approval where the drug was compared to chemotherapy, if that makes sense. It was either treatment of refractory patients or it was compared to a placebo in the maintenance setting. But in breast cancer, there are now two approvals, um, it, both uh, which occurred in 2018, which directly compared PARP inhibitors to chemotherapy. And so the first is a study um, uh, that, uh, and all, by the way, all the study designs were the same because we tried to convince three different companies to do the same study, and they said no, 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 and then everyone did it at the same time. So um, this uh, study, the Olympiad study, randomized uh, individuals with metastatic breast cancer with a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, uh, two to one, to either receive a Laparib or a physician's choice standard of care chemotherapy, which in this case was either capecitabine, venerelbine, or ribulin. Um, and, uh, and then uh, we see what happens. So first, the objective response rate in the elaborate group was 60% compared to 30% in the uh, standard of care group. And the time to response 
was basically identical, 47 to 45 days. The reason this is important is because a lot of times in oncology, we think we need to give the IV chemo to get the, to, to get the response quickly. There was no evidence of difference uh, in these two groups. The progression-free survival was improved in the uh, laparib group compared to placebo, although you know three months is not exactly like what we are really rooting for here, but still it was statistically significant. More importantly, though, we did detailed health quality, uh, health-related quality of life, and individuals have an improvement in their quality of life. So, you know, improved response rate, improved progression-free survival, improved quality of life. For these reasons, it did get FDA approval. And this is particularly important for the 10% of triple negative breast cancer patients who had BRCA mutations, who prior to this, their only option uh, was chemotherapy. There were no other uh, treatments. Um, in, a, in sort of a, this was a pre-specified analysis, but obviously um, uh, not a primary endpoint, looking at overall survival in those who received Olaparib earlier, um, there was actually a, a, an apparent survival benefit as, as opposed to later. So this is consistent with some other data that we've seen uh, about um, the, the timing of administration mattering potentially related to resistance. The next step is to take it into the adjuvant setting. So the Olympia study is BRCA1 and 2 mutation carriers with early-stage breast cancer, 1,800 patients randomly assigning to a lapra versus placebo. This is actually will close to accrual in the spring, and then we'll see, um, and uh, hopefully it will uh, be a good thing. We've also looked at this in other cancer types. So in this study, although the numbers were limited, we had 23 patients a median prior number of chemotherapies for advanced disease was two, and a 22% response rate. Those of you who do GI, that's not, that's not nothing uh, for pancreatic cancer. Um, and we've done, uh, we had some data also in prostate cancer, although the numbers uh, were, were very small there. We've done a subsequent trial with rucaparib for BRCA1 and 2 associated pancreatic cancer, and again, seen positive findings. The uh, sponsor here set, shut the study down early because we didn't have the required number of responses because they all occurred at the end. Um, and this, actually, this patient here has now been on drug for five years. So uh, he's, he was transferred to compassionate use. So he had a, what's called an unconfirmed CR because he came off study uh, onto a compassionate use protocol, but he's been on for five years. Uh, so I think that there really is definitely activity uh, of this drug. In this trial, we did not require that uh, we, we did not exclude patients whose disease had progressed on platinum, and I think that's something that pr uh, subsequent studies have made sure. There's a lot of cross-resistance of platinum and uh, PARP uh, uh, resistance. I'm not going to get too much into the resistance mechanisms because this could be a talk on its own, but there's multiple uh, documented, at least in mice and cell lines, resistance mechanisms. How many of these are actually uh, key in humans is not clear, but one of the creepier ones is this somatic reversion uh, uh, mechanism by which there's a secondary mutation that often knocks, uh, knocks the prior mutation back into the reading frame, so at least some functional protein is made. And again, it's really strange, right, that that happens. I think it's strange. Um, but that's definitely a mechanism that's occurred, and you can find that in circulating tumor material. Uh, so that's one that's kind of easiest to detect. But sort of what the spectrum, what the pie chart looks like of resistance mechanisms, we don't really know. We've been interested in looking at this issue of, of how often tumors have loss of heterozygosity, so loss of the second copy of BRCA1 or 2. And we looked at the TCGA database in conjunction with data uh, that we had. And actually, somewhat surprisingly, in BRCA2, 
uh, breast cancers, particularly ER-positive breast cancers, there was a reasonable chunk that did not have LOH. Now, again, these were primary tumors, so they, uh, so you know, how that that's not that's not to say that it will be the same in the metastatic setting. And honestly, nobody really believed us, so we were very happy when. Uh, whoops, and I'll show you this when a different group also using the TCGA showed almost the same findings, which are for BRCA2 in blue here. These were tumors in breast cancer that did not have loss of heterozygosity. It's very rare in ovarian cancer to not lose that second copy, but if you look at tumors, other tumors, say a colon cancer that just so happens to have a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, it actually is uncommon to have loss of the second allele. This has potential implications for which tumors might respond to PARP inhibitors because you would think that if it, the mechanism is synthetic lethality, you have to lose function uh, for the uh, tumor to uh, respond. So I think that we'll get a lot more information about that as, as various studies are examined. Now, in terms of immune therapy, there's a lot of, you know, breast cancers and ovarian cancer are largely considered cold tumors that don't have a lot of baseline immunogenicity um, compared to, say, melanoma or, uh, or uh, lung cancer. Uh, so there's been interest, too, in seeing what you could do for this. There are some preclinical work that PARP inhibitors actually do make tumors more immunogenic, and then maybe you can tag team that um, with, uh, with some of these checkpoint inhibitors. So the Mediola trial uh, combines Alaparib with Dervalumab, one of the checkpoint inhibitors, uh, to look at this issue. This is just an early uh, stage of the study, though, with only 34 patients. So we're definitely seeing responses, but whether or not these responses are any greater uh, than what you would expect from a lapra alone is not clear. What would be cool is if the duration of response is a lot longer, and we just don't really have the data yet. This cohort is being expanded to look at that issue. Uh, similar findings uh, were looked at in ovarian cancer. So I think this idea of what you should combine things with, how to make these PARP inhibitors better, how to prevent resistance, um, and uh, how, to, uh, how to prolong the responses are all things that are under active study. We actually um, have done a lot of work. This was just accepted in clinical cancer research, looking at the immunogenicity of BRCA1 and 2 related tumors. And the, you can't really read the slide, it's okay. Uh, the, but the, the, the summary is that it's not correlating how everyone thinks. The tumors that had loss of the second allele and had high HRD scores were actually less immunogenic than the others. And so this is actually, and it may have to do with aneuploidy. So this is actually a complicated issue of, you know, when, when we're really going to get the best bang for our buck in terms of immune therapies. Uh, so this, this, this uh, we're definitely kind of working on this issue. Another way, though, to think about immunology is whether or not you could use it for prevention. So I'm at Penn with Ben Franklin, who always said an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that we've been thinking about a lot is whether or not you could use the immune system pre to prevent cancer. Now, everyone, you know, thought 10 years ago, everyone thought using the immune system to treat cancer was crazy. And so, you know, we have to keep an open mind about all these things. Uh, but we know that immune prevention of, of infectious illness, you have to give this, you have to give these vaccines before, uh, before people develop disease. And a lot of the cancer vaccines that have been tried, you know, are given to patients with advanced cancer where, you know, that's probably not the place to give them. Uh, so, so the, and things like checkpoint inhibitors, as remarkable they, as they are, 
they're not exactly things we think about giving healthy people because they do have a lot of toxicity. So the question is, can we rethink immunology approaches? Uh, so a study that um, has, has finished and is now awaiting publication um, that was uh, based out of Penn um, is looking at, uh, and, and sponsored by Inovio, is looking at kind of a modern generation um, uh, vaccine approach. So this is using telomerase, so TERT uh, DNA, with IL-12, um, and it's a plasmid. Um, and it's given, uh, in this study, we gave it to, this slide, I apologize, it's not updated. We gave it to 95 patients uh, with early stage cancers who are at high risk of recurrence. These were not metastatic patients. They had gone through all their therapy. This is also given with electroporation, which is a little electrical jolt, so that you actually get more sort of stuff uptaken and potentially develop more of an immune response. And so the patients were vaccinated in multiple different cohorts. Oops. And suffice it to say, this was immunogenic and it was safe. So we now have drafted a trial and we're hoping that we can get it through. We're going to treat like 20 patients with BRCA1 and 2 mutation who do not have cancer to look at safety and immunogenicity. So that's our plan. We obviously have to take it through all the correct regulatory steps. But the idea of trying to start looking at prevention uh, from this approach when you can identify the cohort at risk is, is really interesting. Um, but cancer genetics, so BRCA1 and 2, we, we kind of have made a lot of progress. We have a plan on the directions we want to go. But of course, cancer genetics has gotten a lot more complicated. So I mentioned these single nucleotide polymorphisms. These are very common, um, extremely common, but are associated with very low risks of cancer, so with relative risks of less than 1.5. You then have relatively rare variants that are moderate penetrance uh, uh, mutations, meaning that mutations in these genes lead to relative risks of sort of in the two to four range. And then the high penetrance, uh, like BRCA1, BRCA2, things like P53 and P10. I'm not going to talk any more about uh, the high penetrance P53, P10, CDH1, um, uh, because that's a whole lecture on, unto itself. But for the rest of the talk, I want to concentrate on these sort of moderate penetrance uh, gene mutations uh, that everybody's getting tested for now and thinking about um, uh, what, to, what we should do or can do with this information. So, you know, as anyone who's been doing this knows, this has gotten really complicated because there are so many labs that are now offering uh, this testing. Up until 2013, Myriad Genetics did all the commercial testing for BRCA1 and 2 in the country was related in part to patent issues, um, but also technology was changing too. So that was around the time too that everyone was moving over to massively parallel sequencing. Suddenly you could put on as many genes on a panel as you wanted and you had competition because you had all these places. So everybody was one-upping themselves, if you will, with how many genes they can put on panels. So this is just an example of how many genes you can put on a panel. By the way, this is not a comprehensive list. Um, this is, uh, I just, uh, a myriad Myris panel um, is located here just as a reference, uh, but multiple companies, you know, Ambry and Vitae, uh, GeneDX, the Broca panel, something called uh, Color Genomics, has all of these different lists. And, yeah, and so this is not comprehensive. You can do panels that are larger or smaller. You can customize them. I think the key is that, you know, it's important to know what's on your panel, uh, what you're ordering, and is it covering uh, what you want. 
So the choice of tests, a lot of people ask me, like, what test do you use? And I'm like, which genetic counselor saw the patient? Uh, kind of depends on that. Uh, because there's a lot of things that play in. One is the clinical situation. What are the cancers in the family? You want to make sure that you're covering whatever uh, uh, concern. There can be uh, preferences for both the patient and the provider. Some patients really don't like a lot of uncertainty and want to stay small and tight and just the information that will clearly change their management. Other people want to leave no stone unturned. Uh, there can be insurance issues, out-of-pocket expenses, turnaround time. So all of these things can impact uh, which, uh, which panel uh, we choose. The insurance stuff is messy because there's different insurers can be capitated to different labs. And yet at this point, it's a little bit like, you know, every lab has a special going on right now. So a lot of them will well, even if they're out of network, we'll have a max out-of-pocket cost of $100. So it's just very rapidly evolving right now. So how does this paradigm that I mentioned earlier with risk assessment, disease prevention, and therapeutics, you know, enter into this, you know, panel age, especially with the moderate penetrance genes? And for one, I'm not going to get into the therapeutics because there are multiple studies. You know, so the question becomes... Do check two and uh, ATM-related breast cancers respond to, uh, you know, a PARP inhibitor? And we just don't know the answer right now. Um, they, those tumors tend to, particularly check two, tends to have even less loss of heterozygosity. So again, will that work? Will it not? Uh, I, we don't know right now. I'm going to focus on uh, the first two. So even though this is messy, so this is this this chicken and the egg. I was talking to some people uh, earlier today about the chicken and the egg about guidelines. So People were sending these tests, but there were no guidelines about what you do when you found them. So the NCCN, which we just recently joined, so we weren't part of any of this. Those are the NCCN said, well, since they're there, we should have guidelines. But then, of course, once you develop a guideline, even if it's made up of extra opinion, it's a guideline. So now people are like, well, we should test for it because there's a guideline. Do you know what I mean? So this is a circular argument about guidelines. So we just need to know that going into it, these are completely made up of, this is on, uh, based on expert opinion and sort of using the transitive property from some other sort of guidelines that are out there. Um, I have focused for the point of this talk, because you can't talk about all genes, on some of the most common genes that are on pretty much all the panels. Um, and I'll go through these um, with you. Uh, and so know that there are these guidelines. Know that they're also not based on, on great evidence, but at least they're a starting point. But where you get here is that uh, uh, mutations in genes like ATM and CHECK2 and NBN and PALB2 stay to start uh, breast cancer screening uh, for these at age 40 with MRI for PALB2 at age 30. These four genes, BARD, BRIP, RAD51, C, and D, basically state insufficient evidence and don't uh, specifically recommend that you do breast MRI. As we'll talk about later, these genes here, BRIP, RAD51, C, and D, are clearly associated with ovarian cancer risk, so there are specific recommendations about oophorectomy. Another element that we're not used to, at least we had to get used to in medical oncology uh, when we started testing for a lot of these genes, is that many of these genes are associated with autosomal recessive conditions of bad childhood illnesses. So, you know, we weren't really necessarily used to counseling people extensively about reproductive risk. Now, we always knew that BRCA2, uh, biallelic BRCA2 mutations can cause anemia, but it just it didn't come up that much, and maybe we should have been talking about it more, but we didn't necessarily, because also 
BRCA2 often has a phenotype, so the other side of the family you could look at. But these, these, can't, these genes aren't that dominant, so you could sort of have it hidden on the other side. So it's specifically recommended that if you have somebody with mutations in the genes boxed in red, that you talk to them about the fact that there is the potential for autosomal recessive conditions and you talk about reproductive counseling in more detail. And again, that's not something that we're really kind of used to, you know, as oncologists considering. The other thing and, and uh, why I'm really excited to be here today is because I think you guys have thought a lot about clinical validity and clinical utility, and I think it's a little bit lost um, um, these days in, in genetics. Um, you know, analytic validity is just you test it a bunch of times, you come up with the same answer. I think we all agree that the, these tests are, uh, have that. Clinical validity is how likely it is that a mutation in that gene that we know what the risk is that's associated with that. And I'll show you some of that data. And then we're nowhere close to understanding clinical utility, which is knowledge of that information improves outcomes in a measurable way. I mean, it may, but we just don't have that information yet. Um, and we've sort of been stuck on actionability that we're going to change things without actually having the data that changing things added value. Uh, so we do have a ways to go. But first, we actually have to figure out clinical, clinical validity. Do we know that these genes are associated with cancer? So here, um, I'm going to make this easier by highlighting things. We have those same genes and then sort of the risks that in the various studies, um, what risks have been associated. Um, and I'm going to highlight these two just for the sake of argument, CHECK2 and NBN. So on the far right, you see that CHECK2 has this little note that's saying that they recommend this for truncating mutations and not missense mutations. So it's specifically called out uh, that that's different. And for NBN, there is a comment about a specific mutation, uh, the Slavic founder mutation. So I'm going to show you that here, which is there's very, you know, very good evidence that trunk, uh, check two truncating mutations have a relative risk of cancer of in the two to three uh, uh, range. There are other studies. So that's very reproducible. But if you look at check two missense mutations, the relative risk is 1.5, which, by the way, that's like a SNP, right? That's not a, a, a risk that we generally worry about. And to make matters even more complicated, one of the, uh, there is a common check two missense mutation, I157T, that's a common Ashkenazi founder mutation. So we find it all the time. I mean, if you do testing on lots of people, you will find lots of these check two missense mutations. And it is not necessarily understood that it depends on the specific uh, mutation. Likewise, NBN, um, this study that shows that there's a relative risk in the two to three range specifically looked at one mutation, the Slavic founder mutation. Other studies, the relative risk, as you can see, 1 1.1, 1 1.3, 0.7. So if you, if you go outside the Slavic founder, there's no evidence of an increased risk. And yet, NBN is fully sequenced on all these panels, and you definitely will find you know, mutations. But whether that's associated with risk is, at this point, really not clear. So this genotype-phenotype correlation actually may be really particularly important in moderate penetrance genes. BRCA1 and 2 also have a little bit of genotype phenotype, but it's not enough to get at that fact that that spread is big. You know, it's spread. It doesn't matter if you're on the low end or the high end. It's all high. Here, it actually may make a big difference. And so these are some of the complexities of the, this information. 
And then, you know, another thing that comes up all the time is that as, as I, if you read across, you probably saw that the relative risks are different depending on the different studies. So why is that? Well, it depends who your cases are and who your controls are. And a lot of the studies that have been done so far have, have been um, out of commercial laboratories. So these are individuals who were referred for commercial genetic testing. So they met criteria for genetic testing. And then they compared them to controls. They used things like the exact database, which are publicly available databases. So there are two potential problems there, although you know, they tried as hard as they could to correct for all this. One is that there's an intrinsic ascertainment bias of who's getting tested. And the second is that the control population is not from the same genetic background as your cases. And both of those have the uh, potential to increase your relative risk and, and state that and overstate the risk associated with it. So there are several large trials, including one we presented at San Antonio, just looking at really just population cases and controls. But there the trouble is, if you will, your cases are in the 60s. So how does that apply to your you know, case that's in their 40s? So we just have a lot to work out about this. Um, so the, uh, the other type of thing that you can do is a kin cohort study, which is you look at, you identify someone, and then you do a co-segregation analysis in the family, and you look at the risk. That, of course, also has a potential for ascertainment bias and also for uh, coexisting tracking of these other modifiers that we talked about. You can do logistic regression modeling, but the, 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 the gold standard is prospective follow-up. And we actually have those data now for BRCA1 and 2. We have some of those data for Lynch syndrome, but we don't have any uh, for these types of studies, uh, so we need them. So again, to show you how this can play out, these are ovarian cancer risk estimates um, from various different studies. And I'm going to show two specific examples. Here's a gene called BRIP1. And I think you know multiple studies have shown that mutations in BRIP1 are associated with ovarian cancer. But you can see you know, here it's 2.6, here it's 6.4, here it's 5. My favorite, though, is this study where they just did the analysis two different ways. In the first, they did a case control analysis, and these were cases and controls from the same population. So this was a well-done case control analysis, and uh, the relative risk was 11. And then they did a co-segregation analysis, which they took the proband and co-segregated in the family, and they got 3.4. And that feels really different, except that the confidence intervals, all, they're all enfolded in each other, right? So. Uh, so, but 3.4 and 11 sound really different and, and, and can uh, have the potential to give you. Um, so it's just a, a, a comment on the lability of our risk estimates right now, too, because of small numbers. And then if you look at something like PALB2, uh, is PALB2 associated with ovarian cancer risk? It might be, but in this study, if they, if they actually looked at, adjusted for the presence of family history, it no longer became significant. So again, it just depends on how you do the analysis. Um, so how does that, let's summarize this, because it, it, it can get uh, messy, and realize that it's changing all the time, so don't get too fixed in your you know, thoughts about how this is. Check 2 ATM and PALB2, there's strong evidence that these are associated with breast cancer risk. Uh, for the rest, the data are much more limited uh, for some of these, they may specifically, RAD51C and D may specifically be associated with triple negative breast cancer. But again, how to act on that is not clear. For ovarian cancer, there is actually reasonable evidence that ATM mutations are associated with ovarian cancer. 
It's just that the lifetime risk only looks to be about 2.5%, which is generally not something we act on. We don't generally do oophorectomy for that level of risk. Uh, and for BRIP, RAD51C and D, there's, there's strong evidence. The other question is, you know, I mentioned in the beginning, I made that point about the true negative because, you know, it's so important to be told that you're negative for a known mutation in the family. But in moderate penetrance genes, this actually may have a completely different meaning. So if you look down here, this is a woman whose sister and mom were both diagnosed with breast cancer. And in this case, she tests in this blue line here, she tests negative for a CHECK2 mutation that both her mother and her sister have. Modeling still puts her over that 20% lifetime risk line because the true negative doesn't have quite the same connotation. So that's another confusing factor. Do you not do stuff if someone tests negative for the known familial CHECK2 mutation? We don't really know right now. And so if you're not going to change your management, you know, then that's then how are we using this information? Again, the go back to the clinical utility. So this is another area that really needs to be explored. But again, the summary, breast cancer risk over 20%. By the way, that's the threshold by which we get MRI. Made up number, that was made up by other people. It was made up by the radiologist. But again, that precipitated the next guideline. Uh, but ATM, check two truncating, PALB2, maybe BARD1. I'm not going to get in. BARD1's a mess. So, uh, And then for lifetime risk, sort of over 3.3%. Uh, over uh, these are the genes that we would consider oophorectomy. All of these have uh, a lifetime risk of ovarian cancer of sort of 5 to 10%, um, but at later ages. So that gets the next question. When do you start screening? Okay, so what do we do uh, with someone who has a lifetime risk? So this is a, an example in ATM that was put together by Dr. Parmigiani's group um, and basically shows that by 40, there's really no difference. The differences become later. So should we, we shouldn't be doing MRIs at 25, uh, but what age should we be doing them? Uh, so the lifetime risk estimates, 20% is the U.S. threshold. It's probably too low. <laughs> the other thing that we don't talk about enough is the concept of residual lifetime risk. So if you're 65, that's different and, have, and just found out you have a CHECK2 mutation. That's different than you were, you know, when, if you were 25. Um, it's not, we don't put the same number there. And yet, that's how most of this uh, kind of occurs. So this concept of residual lifetime risk is important. And really, I would love it if we all started talking about 10-year risk, because then we can actually validate it. And because you can't, it's very hard to validate a lifetime risk, right? But a 10-year risk gives you a framework in which to do so. And that also may be the best way to determine when to start screening is over a certain threshold. Uh, so that's another uh, challenge. Uh, so again, this is just a reminder that the, the guideline lines are there, but that they will absolutely uh, change as the, the data evolve. We do have a study called the Prompt Study Prospective Registry of Multiplex Testing. We have more than 5,700 patients enrolled. This is just a digital registry where people who have mutations in other genes besides BRSA1 and 2 come into the registry. Um, and uh, so we've actually uh, had uh, more than 50% of the patients have done follow-up, and um, over 3.5% have actually developed a new cancer. So eventually this will give us good data, but it just takes a long time to gather sufficient data. <clears throat> so the other, you know, last, you know, area that I wanted to touch upon, um, and I definitely want to have time for questions, is this concept of decreasing barriers to testing. Um, so we, we have ongoing studies, as, as I know you do, you know, looking at telegenetics. We're interested in digital health platforms. 
We're interested in point-of-care testing, where we, we've been testing all of our pancreatic and metastatic prostate cancer patients after a seven-minute video um, and trying to just implement care uh, that way. We do know that too few of the right people get testing, and we're particularly bad at testing survivors. So this was just a, such a discouraging article that we were not involved in at all, uh, but was published in JCO in 2017 based on a national health survey data where only 10% of ovarian cancer survivors had had genetic testing. So nowadays, I think we're pretty good. A new ovarian cancer patient comes in, they get tested. But if they were diagnosed 10 years ago before we were routinely testing everybody, they kind of got lost in the shuffle, and, and people aren't sort of remembering that they didn't test them. And by the way, we all know what the EMRs look uh, like. Try to find somebody's genetic testing result, um, and uh, it's very difficult to do so. So trying to build, you know, you have to be able to find the information to even know that you did it. Um, we also know that family members don't always get tested when a, a mutation is known, what we call cascade testing. You know, why aren't all those cousins getting tested? We know already that there's a mutation in the family. <clears throat> then you can make, you know, we could have, talk forever about what should we test for? What should the panel be? I mean, you can't get, I, I'm on an ASCO committee and they start talking about this. I'm like, wait, let's just be clear. We're not going to agree on what a panel should look like because everybody is doing different things. And when we talk about population screening, which is sort of, you know, uh, being discussed, this is being uh, testing people who don't have cancer, why on earth would we stop at cancer? Then why wouldn't we do hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and long QT and things like that? And by the way, so the primary care doctors are going to do this. I had a primary care doctor one, uh, tell me recently that if he had done everything that he's supposed to do, that that would be eight hours or something like that. So now we're going to add this on, right? So... How are we going to actually do this? How are we going to implement it? So we we're taking like the tiniest little step on this where we're doing, uh, we have a study called the BEFORE study looking at screening for BRCA1 and 2 mutations in the Ashkenazi population. So this is a population offering study. I'm not going to say it's screening because we're not testing everybody. These are people who are willing to come in. Um, and they come in through a digital health platform. Uh, our goal is to enroll 4,000 patients. We've enrolled about 2,800 uh, uh, to date, um, and it's actually been harder to enroll on than we thought. We've enrolled 570 patients in Philadelphia of our 1,000 in a year, and we kind of thought we'd be, be done in like a couple of months. Um, and it turns out that people really want to have their doctors be involved. And we, and by the way, this model is a medical model. We are engaging their primary care physicians, but there's really good data that you increase genetic testing if, if your provider tells you it's a good idea, right? So how do we, you know, make that happen? And those are other pieces of this where we have a whole physician uh, provider engagement arm in terms of primary care doctors. So, you know, in general, I think germline genetic testing is great. It can help with risk assessment, prevention, and therapeutic decision making. But I think a really key thing is that these moderate penetrance genes are not BRCA1 and 2. They are very different. It's not the true negative may have less clinical utility, or at least we just don't have all that information yet. Uh, the guidelines really are based on expert opinion. And I, I'm really concerned. You know, we all know that we're seeing more and more, you know, mastectomies, particularly young patients diagnosed with breast cancer, not just young patients, doing a bilateral mastectomy. And I think this information actually further complicates things because, you know, if you do the modeling, it's very unlikely that a check 2 mutation carrier would have a mortality benefit from a bilateral mastectomy. But now we're adding, we're, you know, we're already in an era where we're doing a lot of them. 
we're adding these additional components. I think we just need to be really carefully differentiating this type of genetic information. So the targeted therapeutics are obviously a really active area of interest, and um, you know, and, and I think that really key is going to be work on going to implement new models of genetic testing. So I know you're going to hear next week about the concept of testing all cancer patients um, and you know, cascading out from there. And I do think that that's a really valid approach to looking at this issue too. So I'm really lucky to work with a lot of great um, uh, people at Penn, and I've had support from BCRF, Komen, and the Basser Center. So thank you for your attention, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Questions? No? No questions? I'll start by my asking, um, what, should we just wait around for, for Epic to come up with solution, solutions, or what should, what, what should we be doing to try to come up with better technologies or, or ways to take these, this information and incorporate it into that care? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, so there's like little tiny things you can do today, and then there's some things that Epic has coming. I mean, one thing that we really, really tried to do is put genetic testing in the problem list, even when it's negative, which I know is like a weird way to think about it. But if it's had, someone's had negative testing, now someone can get rid of your problem list, and you, there's nothing you can do about that. We've also tried to standardize how the genetic testing is getting scanned in so that it's labeled the same way. And that can be hard because depending on who's scanning and what, but at least then potentially you can use a filter to find information. So those are like the things you can do today but require staff training and stuff like that. Um, the, uh, Epic is putting together a genomic indicator module um, where they're actually going to have, you know, but they're working on this. And the hope is that genetic data will flow into Epic and be, you know, discrete in a way that it is not. Um, now, but I, I mean, Epic's aware of the problem, but I think, and they actually now have more of a pedigree-based functionality in their family history. I don't know when your last upgrade was, but that's like another thing that can be turned on. So I think they're trying to work on it, but in the meantime, I think as hard as, like I try to document, I just try to keep my genetic testing information documented and in like my note so that it's always there, like I keep the summary of the cancer history, because otherwise you just lose it. You don't know that you did it. Yeah. Yes. One of the things that challenges providers is retesting. So, yes. You know, the breast cancer doctors have referred their patients back in the beginning, and now they're wondering, oh my God, do I have to resend them to you uh, because you've got all these other genes or, or the rearrangement tests? How do you guide people in thinking about, um, you know, because genetic testing keeps changing, so do you have to come back? And who do you ask? Yeah, it's such a great question, and the testing fatigue issue is so huge. Um, when large genomic rearrangement testing came along, just so everyone knows, I mean, it used to be that uh, BRCA1 and 2 testing was just sequencing, so we missed all the large genomic rearrangements. And then they added first just five, and then they added a complete genomic rearrangement, so it was just a pain. When we got to full rearrangement testing, we did actually send out a notification to everybody, but we did strat try to stratify them and say, you have a really low chance, or you should really come in. Whether we should have done that that way or not, maybe we should have told everyone they should really come in, but it's, it's hard to know. So these days, my short answer is anybody who wants to come in, come in. So if, if your patient has brought it up to you, just send it back because that's easy enough. But in terms of when you as a provider should really be alert to it, I think that breast ovarian families, I think that all those should come back, or some of those families that you're really like, boy, we should have found something. 
But that's vague, I mean, you know, because we know that not sending back everybody will miss the check twos and ATMs. I'm more worried about missing the PALB twos because those are most like BRCA1 and 2, although not really with the ovarian cancer risk, but the breast cancer risk is high. And the ovarian families, you know, if we find RAD51C DRBRIP, that does have a significant impact on folks. So those are the ones that I kind of, kind of really encourage people to come back, although, but we don't have a systematic approach, and I'd love to hear if you do, because we haven't figured it out. No. Yeah. Yeah. Could you speak a little bit to how often variants of unknown significance are found and how and when you might use that? Yeah, that's a great question. So BRCA1 and 2, the variant rate has come down quite a bit now, and we're kind of hovering in the 2 to 3%. Um, it depends also on, on your racial and ethnic population. So underrepresented minorities definitely have more variants of unknown significance. And um, when you do panel testing, it's completely dependent on how many genes you put on your panel, how likely you are to find a variant. Uh, but yes, the rates are 25 to 30 percent. And then you have an issues, those issues of keeping track of all the VUSs and, you know, did they get reclassified and things like that. Uh, and um, and so, so that, you know, we, you have to almost, it's almost information overload. So I personally, if I see a check to VUS, I just don't even, I just put it out of my mind immediately. Whereas if I find VUSs and genes I care more about, I'm, I'm really trying to be attentive to that. But we can't, we, we have to rely on the labs to tell us when it's reclassified or a patient shows up in front of me again so I can go to ClinVar or something like that and look it up. But it's a, it's a lot of time and effort. Um, so I don't, I, uh, that is a limitation of the VUSs, and I, uh, the VUSs are a limitation of panel testing for sure. And I think you also just have to prepare people who are getting testing that they might find it so that they, I can't tell you how many calls I get, you know, uh, doctors who have family members who have VUSs, and I'm like, you know, don't worry about it. And I'm like, but it has to mean something. And you're like, nope, it means we don't know what it means. 95% get reclassified to nothing. And that's what we continue to try to tell people. Um, Radiologists, they kind of put their fingers up in the air and said, "20% lifetime risk. That's what we're going to screen." The ideas of like setting benchmarks, uh, because a lot of these problems are becoming implementation, and so you need to know so who should be getting the radiology. How does the medical community decide like what is that 10-year risk of having breast cancer? Is it 3%? Is it 5%? How how do you yeah. determine? Yeah, I, I think, you know, so one of the other challenges gets to be, and, and I saw this article like two days ago, and I was like, oh, can I get in my talk? That if you do random MRI screening on people, like 25% of the time you find something, right? So this is not a surprise. But then the authors tried to go further. This is full body MRI screening, like how often you find something that you could actually help somebody with. So I think it does get back to this sort of clinical utility phenomenon, which is that, I mean, I mean, here we are at Dartmouth with, you know, let's discuss mammography utility, right? And I think you guys, the active discussion that you have, you know, who, who you should be doing what on. And I think, you know, when CHECK2 first arose in 2002, I gave a talk which said, well, CHECK2 may just help us to decide who needs mammograms. And then all of a sudden we're like, oh, no, they all need MRIs, right? So I don't know, I don't know the answer to that question, but it may be that those are the people that at 40 all need mammograms, not necessarily needing MRI, unless there's like breast density issues or things like that. So I think that it's more complicated than genetics too, because I think breast density does really play a role because it, um, because of the decreased sensitivity with mammography with 
uh, breast density. But I, I think we need to actually do the studies, and, and they're hard to do. So until then, we just have these numbers. But I do hope that they consider a 10-year risk estimate, because then at least studies could be compared one to the other in a 10-year time frame. It should be nice. So. All right. Thank you so much. Off. All right. There we go. There we're good. Uh, okay.